as we record 10 years ago, Steam's beta went public on Linux. It's been 10 years, boys. Congratulations, wow. everyone. November 6, 2012. The initial beta was limited to just select participants. They wanted to work out early bugs. And then they announced they'd be releasing it to the wider public later as more Source Engine games became available. And they based the original Steam stuff on Ubuntu 1204.12.10. That's what I'm still running around. <laughs> and now, you know, with the Steam Deck out there, things are looking pretty good. Steam on Linux was at a pretty healthy 1.28%, which is, I mean, 1% sounds small, but when you consider the massive base of Steam and how it's always growing, that's almost, you know, 1.3%. That's pretty decent. Mac's only at 2.23%. So we're sniffing at the bottom of the Mac heel right now. And as the deck sells, there'll be more and more soon. It's, uh, that's pretty nice to see. You know, you look at where Valve's at now with Linux. It seems like we're in a pretty good position for that market share number just to get bigger and bigger. Yeah, right. It's, it's, getting, it's getting great. I think it's only getting better. Hello, friends, and welcome back to your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. And my name is Brent. You're back. Hey. Welcome. Thank you for having us again. The boys are back in town this week, and we're surprising each other with three unknown topics. So I can't tell you what we're going to talk about because I don't know. What I do know is that I've got a big update on my Odroid H3+. Plus. Finally. Really looking forward to telling you about that. And I know we'll round out the show with some great boosts and picks and a lot more. So before we go any further, let's give a shout out to that virtual lug. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello, hello guys. Hello. Hey, Wes, and hello, Brent. Hello. Hello, and hello, everybody up there in quiet listening. We got a big crowd up there. They're being very quiet today. <laughs> That's the nature <laughs> of the... I see. But, are, but are they listening? I hope so, because I'd like them to go over and say good morning to Tailscale. Head over to tailscale.com. It's a mesh VPN powered by WireGuard. We love it. I used the heck out of it recently. I just got to go into my most recent Home Assistant installation as well. It's a powerful mesh VPN product. Go say good morning to our friends over at Tailscale and use it for free up to 20 devices at tailscale.com. Tell me unplugged program sent you. All right. So before we get into the show today, we got to sort this out. Uh oh. We got some geocache drama. And I don't know if Brent just has selective memory holding <laughs> or if I'm confusing locations and names again. But one of us is right and one of us is wrong. And we've got to settle it now before we go any further. So you put it in the doc, so I'll let you start, Brent. Sure thing. Uh, Jared wrote in with a little note that made me wonder if our geocache at Folsom might be a flop. Jared writes, I stopped by the Folsom geocache with my kids and spent over an hour looking and digging around without success. Just a note, we didn't bury any of them. Apparently that's a faux pas in the geocache world. Jared continues, I met another fellow listener who happened to be looking for it too, which was a bonus. Okay, that's amazing. Isn't that great? So that got me thinking, how many people are looking for this stuff? I really want to know. We love hearing that. So please, if, if you went looking and didn't find, don't be disappointed. Leave us a note. We'd love to hear it. Or stash another one. If it's missing, hide one. I don't know. Well, that's actually a great idea. I don't know how you'd mark it like a JB community one. Maybe you put a note in there or something or a thumb drive with some JB shows. Maybe we could send them some stickers. We put in a t-shirt that we were hoping that was going to work. Jared continued, at this point, I think 
it's either one found by someone else as the area doesn't does get frequent traffic or two it's so well hidden that we need another clue besides chris's burnt trees <laughs> listen now uh, come on why are you coming at me <laughs> why are you coming at me with that uh, you hid the cash I was there in person, but I had no idea where you hit it. You had to tell me. And uh, I looked for a little bit and had a hard time. So I think that's, I mean, that's part of the balance, isn't it? It's its balancing not having just random people find it because we want our JB fans to find it. But also, so it needs to be hidden well enough that not just a random person finds it. And the excuses come out. You see how he's attacking my hiding styles here? He's no, no, attacking no. me. I had this exact same challenge on the other geocaches. Oh, no, I know what's going on here. You see, here's what happened is I got a personally good, reasonable spot to hide it. And then Brent couldn't find it. (laughs) So he's got it all in his head that I made it super hard. But you know why? Here's why he can't find it. Here's why Jared couldn't find it. I believe this was found almost immediately. Oh, really? I have a clear recollection on one of our shows. And I think it was the peak of our travel. So we don't remember it. But I remember in one of our shows. This was the first one that got found, was the Folsom one. No, I disagree. I think it's the one that Wes planted in that tree that got found first. Mine was definitely found. Okay. All right. (laughs) That might be true, but I swear I remember talking about the Folsom one being found. So we need someone else to go on location. Okay. Did we even ever hide one there? At this point, I'm beginning to question it. (laughs) I've heard a lot of stories, but... I think we need either trackers in these things or something so we can tell if they've been moved. Uh, But actually, I think one thing that might help is maybe we need a central place to like collect all the geocaches and the status of them, whether they've been found, not found, etc. So uh, actually, Takeoff751 on our GitHub suggested that we implement such a system. So I am going to put out a pledge. Here you go. You ready for this? Oh, so by next Linux unplugged, that's in seven days, we will have a geocaching tracking system in place. Now it might not be fancy. We've talked about in that issue, some really fancy ways of doing it, but we'll, we'll at least have something and I will go back and try to figure out which ones have been found, which ones haven't. And I'll collect all of the, you know, coordinates and everything in a nice, easy to find place. There you go. I believe the Folsom one has been found. I will give a little bit more context because I'm looking at the video I took of it right now. And what uh, I would say is you go down the trail to the shore where there's um, a river. No, it's a lake or whatever. And there is some burnt logs pretty much right off to the right hand side when you're walking down there. And those burnt logs under one of them here. Here, I'll show it to you, too, Wes. Maybe you can think of a way to describe this. But so. Here, to grab the phone, you can see the that's the video right there. How would you describe that spot? It's just kind of down on the shore under some burnt logs. I mean, it's not, there's nothing. <laughs> They're not especially burnt from this picture, just kind of some some regular logs. There's, I mean, at the time there was a bunch of leaves. That's I don't the know, maybe one it's, clue I give is burnt logs see, and youth. Maybe the area is kind of previously no, I'm burnt. No, I'm agreeing with Chris. In person, it's clear that that area someone i don't know threw down a cigarette and got burnt and everything else is super lush and green so i think the burnt part is actually a great tip because it's the only area around there that sort of looks like that and chris when you had me in person try to find it just based on our little this was the first one we dropped so he was like okay now try to find it (laughs) i had a hard time because i didn't have any hints but i think that hint is actually a really great one now that leads me to believe I think someone else grabbed it. That's just, that's my conclusion. 
you could see if you're walking by it, you could see the blue. I can't show it on camera, but you could see the blue of the lid walking by. It's actually visible just walking by it. It's not like it's... I like that you put a little bit of leaves over it, though. It's a little. Just like a little. Yeah, it's a, it, but... Um, Wasn't the lid red? It looks blue in the picture. Uh-oh. <laughs> Brent, get it together. How burnt was it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, all right. So uh, you can come at me with my hiding styles or what lids I use, but the reality is I think it was one of the first ones found. So therefore, one of the most successful. Wes is being thus most successful. At least by one measure. <sighs> but anyways, we should do more of these because clearly there's not enough. That's amazing that there are two different listeners at the same time are out there. Yeah. Better get out there while the weather's still good. And Jared finishes. We had fun looking for it nonetheless. And my daughter implored me to get out there sooner the next time we have another geocache to find. So thank you for putting it out there. It was great meeting everyone at the Sacramento meetup and having this fun little activity along with it. Yeah. Uh, you know what? It makes me just want to travel again a little bit, which is good. I thought maybe mm-hmm. I, I thought maybe my travel bone would be broken. Although I have to say with the weather what it is, I'm looking forward to just hunkering down for a bit. And uh, I got plenty of projects to work on. Oh, yes, you do. And the biggest for me personally, although probably not for the whole family, is my new home server to replace my dead Raspberry Pi server. Oh, rest in peace, little buddy. Yeah. It's time came too soon. However, the timing could not have been more perfect. I was pretty bummed when the server died because my home assistant setup was very complex. I got like a lot of devices and it was responsible for a lot of the automation. But then additionally, like we just talked about, um, on the pre-show, I like having my media locally because I'm often on a mobile connection. Yeah. And so I also had it serving up local media. I have it doing all of our documentation and markdown. I had it running our DNS. I had it re- running all kinds of things like smoke ping and uh, sync thing. and um, The heart of the RV. Yeah. And it died. When I was down in Pasadena for the JPL tour, it was back up in Sacramento dying. And I didn't even know it. But the timing was like unbelievable because when I arrived home from our road trip, my home assistant, Yellow, was sitting on the porch. It's just amazing. After a year, like I crowd, I crowdfunded that thing like a year ago. It shows up. And so I get, uh, I get my home assistant set up going and it's rock. And I talked about that and self-hosted recently. Then right around the same time, hard kernel folks announced the Odroid H3 and the H3 Plus which is an x86-based Raspberry Pi alternative. It starts around $165 for the Plus. So a little spendier, but yeah. x86. And you get a quad-core Jasper Lake processor, which goes up to 3.3 gigahertz, four cores. It goes up to 64 gigabytes of dual-channel DDR4 RAM. It has an NVMe slot. It has dual 2.5 gigabit NICs. Oh, I've mentioned it before on the show. It's like it was the perfect solution at the moment that my system had died. And I I was waiting. I knew I needed to redo part of my setup anyways because I had some home assistant issues. But I just didn't want to didn't want to go through all the hassle without also getting a performance upgrade. And then this stuff just and and not only did this get announced, but they actually shipped it on time. You have it. I have it. And so I've been running it in production over the last week or so. I really banged on it pretty much all weekend. This is like what I focused on the most when it was raining. And um, I am going to give it a hearty endorsement. I give this one the LUP seal of approval. If you're looking for a low-power device, when this thing is running idle, just kind of, and I would define idle as your services are loaded, but nothing's 
really being taxed, 1.5 watts. Wow. For an x86 box. I can run any x86 application I want. It's got a modern Intel processor with QuickSync. I've got super fast storage. 1.5 watts. That seems amazing and impossible, but how does it compare to ARM stuff? Is it, it must be in the same area. It's around there. That is crazy. Where it it can go up a little higher, I think, depending on your load. Yeah, what you're dealing with it. Yeah, I actually, I haven't really seen a lot of how, that. How does it feel to be back on x 6 I feel like another way to spin this little segment is uh, Chris abandons ARM. Well, I don't know about abandoning ARM forever, <laughs> but I am done with the Raspberry Pi. I No way. Not compared to this. This blows wow. it away. Wow. It's, I'm done with the Pi. Seriously. I never thought this would day would happen. Are you feeling okay? It's the storage, it's the CPU, it's the two SATA ports. Having a so I, I also picked up a four terabyte SATA disk from Amazon for like a ridiculously great price. And I hooked it up over SATA. And now I have I've gone from USB storage to actual SATA storage. And the only thing I'm not really satisfied so far with the Odroid would be the cases. They're kind of clunky, they're kind of rough. They're a good price, but if anybody knows the better cases, I would definitely be interested. Have you had a chance to play with the dual NICs yet? Because I'm, I'm real curious about that. No, I only, I'm only using one. I don't actually need dual in this, but not buying Raspberry Pis anymore. So like when I do eventually get this firewall set, when we get a firewall set up here at the studio, I'm going to go with one of these. I'm done with the Raspberry Pi. I'll find something to do with a few of them I have left, I guess, but it's just so much better. Melt them down in a sort of ceremonial. No, I mean, I'll use them for something, but. I don't know, maybe mine Monero. I've got another question for you. I noticed there's a massive fan on that case, which in one way is probably good because it's quiet or quieter. I'm curious, have you had a sense of the heat output on that thing? I'm not pushing it a lot. So I've been checking it and now I'm also monitoring the booth, you know, because it's in the booth and the temperatures are all totally normal. So I don't have a fan on mine. The case does have room for a fan. It does not come with a fan, but they sell a series of accessories for this thing including a fan. If you want to run it with a SATA disk, make sure you get a power cable because you're going to need that. It doesn't, <laughs> right. it doesn't come with that. But one of the other things that's made this real great, got to give a shout out to Nix. Oh, never saw that coming. So what I did before I decided to deploy this thing is I took my dev one because I'm, I was going to nuke and pave it to put Fedora on there anyways for testing. So before I did that last week, I uh, did a minimal Nix install and started configuring it like I was going to set up the Odroid on my Dev1 laptop. Yeah. So I got Jellyfin set up. I got my storage mounted where I wanted it with everything in the right file systems and all that. Got, got all this stuff kind of preloaded and configured. Figured out what I didn't like. Fixed a few things. Got some tweaks going. Yeah. And then when all the parts arrived for the Odroid, which is really, I was waiting on cabling. I just sat down and I, I decided to do a GUI install because I'm lazy. And also, I just wanted to run, I wanted to get the Odroid all the way up to a GUI again, right? So make sure everything was there, test the networking, test everything. And so I went and I grabbed the NixOS GNOME installer and uh, ran that, did a live session, made sure everything was working, made sure I could see the storage, I, everything was good because yep. I brought the disks with me. I had them attached to the Dev1 over USB, but on the o Odroid, I connected them over SATA, but it all still no worked. No problem. It was still Dev SDA on both of them. Perfect. So I uh, get everything going, launch the installer, and I choose the minimal install option, which is fantastic. So when it's all done, it reboots into a headless setup, essentially, and a real minimal config. And so then I just SSH in, drop my config that I 
kind of built over a week on the dev one onto the Odroid, do the old Nix config rebuild. And uh, within like, I don't know, 15 minutes, I mean, maybe not even that. The thing was crazy fast. And it's a pretty minimal install. Uh, I rebooted and I had everything. And you're done. And like everything worked. It was incredible. And I opted to use containers for a couple of things instead of using the Nix package manager, mm-hmm. uh, f- mostly for my media stuff. So sync thing, Jellyfin, that's all via container. But then things like NetData and Duplicati and all, of course, all of like the command line tools, that's all installed via the, via the Nix system. I'm thinking this is going to be a really solid long-term install because I have rollback capabilities with Nix now. And it's a pretty minimal base install and config. And it's all just defined in that config file. Easy to back up. Easy to, I already have it backed up. Yeah. And so I think I can just keep that base system rolling and I'll just update the application containers that I run in containers over time. And I, I think with the performance of the Odroid. You're not going to be super taxing this box all the time, right? So we can just kind of sit there, hum along, do what you need it to. I think I'm going to get it. Get you got QuickSync, as you said, so it's not even going to have to be like too hassled there. Years. Years, Wes. Years. I'm going to get years of use out of this. Wait, thing. but then what are you going to do if you're not constantly rebuilding your home server? I'm going to be buying more of these things and putting them in all kinds of places. <laughs> I mean, I ended up with like four Raspberry Pis over time. This is so, it really, they hit it out of the park. The 1.5 watts at idle matters a lot because there are long stretches of time where I'm running off solar. And so anything that runs consistently matters, even if it's just a couple of watts over a 24 hour period of time or a, you know, a week, it, that really adds up. Okay. Okay. Do you think you could do a show off on a point? I was wondering, I was wondering, um, definitely, definitely fed a PCI slot. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. But, you know, the disk I.O. is really fast. Maybe. It would depend on the CPU and all that, but maybe. I've thought about it. I've thought about, could these be used as a desktop? Swap out the studio. You know, we got to replace these studio rigs. That's actually what I was thinking is the Reaper machine. Oh, man. I was thinking uh, because it'd be silent. Right. Tiny little thing. More space below here for fun snacks. Cheap. Right. I love how your, your thoughts, what, two weeks ago was to put a Thaleo in place? And now you're talking about putting this right there. No, the Thaleo's no, so the Thaleo's gonna no, no, the Thaleo is for the OBS machine. That's oh, oh sorry, 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 sorry. We might get that ordered tomorrow morning, but for the Reaper machine, that's a different that's a different set of requirements. Hmm. It might work. It might work. Yeah, I'm very, very impressed. And I've done two separate orders. So I ordered the Odroid, and then I also had to order uh, a, like a cable pack and stuff. Bull shipments were just. I mean, not as quick as Amazon, but yeah, yeah. within a few days, they arrived, no problem. Like, no so supply chain issue. feels good. Yeah. Mm. I'm very, that very That matters impressed. when you need a replacement in a pinch or, you know, the next piece for your next project. So I'm going to get, uh, going to get just things kind of dialed in on this thing now. I got Tailscale set up on it last night. And so that's, that's going now. And I got um, a real kind of nice clean like i really took everything i've kind of figured out over the last couple of years since i built the raspberry pi and applied it to this one yeah my first raspberry pi builds were raspberry pi os right and that just doesn't make for a good server what a world ago that was and then my second generation which is what my pi server was that died my second generation of raspberry pi builds was all based on ubuntu i think 2004 their first lts that officially supported the pi and I got to give Ubuntu credit. It worked really, really well. It did a very good job for what I needed. But there's a lot there. 
compared to a minimal Nix install, there's so much more installed on that Ubuntu system and so many more services and like snap stuff that I didn't want on the server. Yeah, just a bunch of things you don't particularly care about that might be nice on a more generic server, but not for what you're doing here. And there was something really nice about getting a kind of like having a system to make mistakes on on the dev one and do things wrong a couple of times. Because like one of the things I did the first time is I tried to just do Jellyfin as just using Nix. Yeah. And one of the things I discovered is that presently, although they're working on it, but presently they have an older version of Jellyfin packaged in Nix. You think of it as a rolling distro. It's got everything brand new. But in this case, Jellyfin was actually out of date. And there are solutions to solve that on Nix. But then I also have to solve it for FFmpeg because I need a version of FFmpeg that works with Jellyfin. And then I also have to solve it for this plugin that I'm using that's based on a certain version of Jellyfin. And it kind of just started becoming like this rabbit hole of like fixing stuff to make it use the Nix system versus I could just go get the container that just had it all. And obviously NixOS runs containers just fine. Exactly. So that was sort of one of the things I realized on my test system was like, maybe I won't do it this way. Yeah. I can see it's nice not having to worry about containers and not worrying about any of that. But for these media applications, Plex 2, the creators of these containers have done things to optimize like hardware transcoding and stuff like that. And you probably, a lot of these, like you, you don't really want to look inside, right? You don't really care. Like as long as it works and it pops up its web interface and like does the thing, you, yeah. you're not trying to go mess inside the container anyway. Yeah, it's not like a, it's not like a core business tool. It's how I just want to watch something on my TV. And I just want to watch something on my TV. Damn it. You know? Now, when it goes down, it suddenly becomes a core business <laughs> tool. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. No kidding. Uh, at least for me. But, um, you know, I, so I made those mistakes, fixed them. And the beautiful thing is, and then I'm all done on this. But the, the thing I just effing love about Nix is the moment I realized, yeah, this is probably better as a container. I just went and commented out the stuff I added to the Nix config rebuilt and it was like i never installed jellyfin it was like it was never there it was a totally clean system again That's so nice it's so nice and then i just went and got the container and it's like never did that nothing nothing you know just pretend like i never made that mistake that you can just have access to this giant array of software that you can just sort of arbitrarily compose together into different systems yeah. whenever you want in different ways whichever one works away. better for me too yeah it's such a great platform in that regard and you just have to invest the time in educating yourself to figure out which one works right. And sometimes you just have to do it the hard way like I did. Try it one way. But I love that. And then uh, and then the thing that makes it so great is I just pick that config file up, drop it on the new rig, rebuild, off to the races and done. So it was a real success. And getting the Odroid up and going, combined with the compatibility of x86, but the power usage of like a traditional ARM system, really hitting the sweet spot for me. Hey, good job x86, I guess, too, huh? That's, yeah. that's impressive. Linode.com slash unplugged. That's where you go to get $100 in 60-day credit for a new account. And it's a great way to support the show while you're checking out something pretty great, i.e. Linode. Linode is easy to use and powerful cloud hosting. They have 11 data centers around the world, soon to be like another d dozen over the next year. Uh, but really, I think the key thing is that a really solid Linux infrastructure. They make it super quick to deploy systems, and you get to choose from a very wide range of Linux distributions, pretty much all the great distros. And there's even guides on how to build it up from the ground up. We've done that a couple of times for various reasons. They now also offer bare metal servers, and we use the absolute 
snot out of their S3 compatible object storage. That's what's behind our PeerTube instance. That's what's behind our NextCloud instance for our team here. It's just kind of like our go-to solution for anything that's going to sort of have a various amount of data. I don't want to like slice off disks like like an old caveman or something. They have a brilliant VLAN support where you can actually bridge different Linode data centers together. A powerful DNS manager. They support Kubernetes, Ansible, and Terraform if you're using that tooling. Super fast networking because they are their own ISP. And their pricing is 30 to 50% cheaper than the other major cloud providers out there. And they're a true, genuine Linux-loving company. They started because they saw what you could do with VMs and Linux before before there ever was an AWS or cloud hosting, as we call it. And because of that, they built a company around the merits of the product, the capabilities, the speed, the features, the reliability, and the support. They have 365, 24-7 support by phone, top-tier support when you call them. Additionally, they have tons of resources on their website. Just a couple of days ago, they posted a how to revert your last Git commit tutorial. This is really just a tutorial to get you going on Git. We talk about it all the time here, but what about some practical examples? How do you actually roll things back when you make a mistake? They've got an absolutely free tutorial. It's really nothing Linode specific about it. It's just about getting you those skills. And then I think they hope something you'll be able to use on Linode get even more out of Linode, I would imagine. Lots of great tutorials. I'll put a link to this one, How to Revert Your Last Git Commit. What a great guide. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I love that kind of stuff about Linode. Great online resources, great technical resources in the company, and a website that I've noticed everyone on our team at various skill levels can use to manage the systems. It's really fantastic. And their community support runs super deep as well. So go get that $100 and support the show. You go to linode.com slash unplugged. That's linode.com slash unplugged. We do have some housekeeping to get to this week. Uh, I think number one, we got to talk about, I promised to try to bring it up earlier and I'm already sliding on that. The tuxies are coming up. So we're getting serious about this year's tuxies and we're looking for people to help us maybe organize it, work on the submissions, get the questions in better shape. I have launched a tuxies boardroom. Put your tuxes on, folks. Yeah, get 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 your bests on and come join us. We'll have a link in the show notes if you'd like to join us in Matrix and help us organize this. Or you can go to bit.ly slash board, and that'll take you there. Tuxies board. Who doesn't want to go there? And we'd love to have you join us in there and help make the Tuxies the best awards ever. It's the number one award show. I mean, we have, Linux. you know, out there, there's uh, there's a lot of really great projects and uh, we want help trying to, trying to honor them. Yeah, is that Nextcloud instance? It's still up, right? Yep. I got to start it with the, the little blank entry we can start crafting. With. Yeah, so if we could find, you know, I mean, we could work on it. Perhaps somebody feels like they'd be, do a better job. Yeah. Definitely possible. We're already sliding. Uh, then we could give them access to the Nextcloud instance, and, and that's where we have the form that gets composed over there. And if you have ideas on things that we didn't get in the Tuxies last year that should be in the Tuxies, you can boost them into the show or you can join that Matrix chat room and uh, let us know as well. Now, there is an event going on, uh, kicks off tomorrow as we record, and it runs through the 9th. It's something that we haven't said for a long time. It's been gone. It's been missing from the community calendar, and it is the Ubuntu Summit 2022. It's back, and Brent wanted to uh, get you all, I guess, up to date on it, I guess? 
<laughs> you can't go. I I, no, I noticed that uh, there's registration for kind of tuning in remotely. I don't think all of the ah, talks yeah. are being streamed, but I think the main room is being streamed. So they have a bunch of tracks, including the Ubuntu desktop, of course, which seems obvious. But um, some community tracks and data science, app ecosystems, infrastructure, devices, and content and design, which is, you know, close to my heart. And so I just thought, you know, the people should know this is happening. Yeah. Uh, I know you can go ahead and register right now for some remote viewing stuff. I wasn't able to find a link right away to where it's going to be streamed, but I'm sure they've got that all figured out and we'll probably get an email or something with where it's going to be at. So um, that's my little PSA. That's great. There was a possibility the JB team was going to make it, but it just didn't work out scheduling wise. So hopefully this will become a trend that they'll keep doing. It certainly seems like Canonical is really excited about it. And uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see what this you know new era of celebrating the, the really awesome Ubuntu community that exists is, is like. There's a lot yeah. of neat folks in it and participating and helping it grow and you know keep it diverse and active. It's nice to see these kinds of things showing up more. I agree. It's something that I'm really happy to see because it, it brings the, um, the all the stakeholders together in a way that can help make the Linux platform better, regardless of which um, distribution you're using. Yeah, a message we can all get behind. I will say, if you are planning on joining in, it is happening in Prague, and so you might have to check the time zones on that one. I think if you're in the Pacific Northwest... It starts at like 1 a.m. tonight, so that's something to take into account. Just check their calendars. I'm sure they make it nice and easy for you to figure it out. It would be great if they posted the videos on something like YouTube so people could see what it's about. I can tell you just from behind the scenes, it seems like they're very serious about this. They're really committed to it, just been, you know, communicating diligently with us, and they're clearly trying to bring in as many people as they can and cover a wide range of topics. I, I used to love these things. Yeah. So I, here's hoping that this becomes an ongoing yearly thing. And I think it also shows a sign that Canonical is willing to spend real money to invest in the community because I have a sense they are flying in a lot of people. And the, the, the cost of that and stay and all of that and the food is just astronomical. So it's a big commitment. And then also just a PSA, we're going to take a look at Fedora 37 next week on the show. So if you'd like to... Uh, download it and try it out and join us join us yeah you can either listen along with it or uh, join us in the mumble room of course it'll be live noon pacific 3 p.m eastern over at jupiter.2 and then last but not least also on our radar the end of year holiday loves they're coming up you can boost in your prediction or you send an email i was thinking people could use 2023 sats for their for their predictions oh i like that go to linuxunplugcom slash contact to send in your predictions. We start collecting some of them and then uh, Brent will read through them and steal a few of them. Of course. Thanks. <laughs> Maybe I will too. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. It's been a while because last year, it's been a while since we've done our like pre-record format for them because last year, Lup just missed all the major holidays. But this year, we're going to land smack dab, I think on Christmas or Christmas Eve or something like that. Yeah, it's... I believe so. And then, uh, and, oh, then oh, oh. and then New Year's. Yeah. So there's that, right? So there's that. Yeah. So we're going to probably pre-record that, so that'll all be coming up on the calendar at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. But that's why we're putting the word out now. We need your help. Yeah, because it'll be coming up sooner than you'd think since we're pre-recording. So if you want to get your predictions in, boost them in 2023 with a little prediction. And You, you know we need help if you've listened to any of the previous predictions. You do know, right? <laughs> Seriously. 
Although I think maybe this is what it was my better yeah, years. You, we'll see. Maybe you're gonna crush it. Maybe uh, I, I just know I tried it already. Speaking of boosts, we got one from Mike Paizo 1970, and he sent in 222,222 sats. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a duck, D-U-K, duck, loaded with talent. And it's also a big dollar boost. I says, uh, Chris, Wes, and Brent, I've been a listener since episode 125. Oh, what? Just a little after you started, Wes. Wow. I usually just listen and then just consume the information. Rarely do I comment or interact with the hosts of media, but I wanted to give back for all that I've learned. Now that the Lightning Network allows me to do so, for the first time, I've invested in Bitcoin, changed my podcast app, and I'm finally able to give. You call 2,222 a row of ducks. Well, for my first boost ever, I am sending in you a row of super ducks. That's where the 222,222 sats comes from. Things are looking up for all the duck. Thank you so much for everything. Well, Mike, thank you. Yeah, um, no kidding. And Mike, you you uh, don't even realize it, but you also put us at the top of the fountain hot list for Friday night, Saturday morning. So we picked up a new batch of listeners thanks to your boost. That's so amazing. On top of that, you came in uh, at a really great week because our node was down twice, once due to a software upgrade and once due to a very long power outage. And so we missed a lot of boosts. And uh, so I appreciate that very much. And this also is the week that John A. lost his streak. Oh, which, we still, you know, we, we said, we, we said, yeah, he's welcome and he quit boosting. So that tells you something, but I think he will join us in the studio at some point. But uh, so thank you very much, Mike. We really appreciate it. It was sort of the perfect timing, uh, the way it all came together with your boost and, and of course, the generous size of it, it meant that uh, we picked up some new listeners and I got a note from somebody who said, hey, I found you in Fountain today and loving oh, nice. the show. And it's just, it's so awesome. It's such a great thing because um, a Linux podcast is never going to be at the top of an iTunes or Spotify chart. It's never going to be at the top of their store ever. Well, what about when Joe Rogan's our next guest? Right. And it's incredible because we're on, the, we're on a list of, you know, really, really great podcasts and it's, it helps people with discovery. I also love the idea of uh, yeah, a new, like an old time listener, which also just, it's always delightful when, you know, we get to hear from them. Yeah. Inspires a new listener too. Like yeah. that's, that's just amazing. And it's also, it's like price of Bitcoin is going to be low for a while. It's a great time to experiment. Sats are cheap. Experiment, you know, see how hard it is and play with the different stacks because there's self-hosting involved if you'd like and a lot of that. So it can be a lot of fun. All right. So this week we're three wild and crazy guys. I have no idea what you all want to talk about, <laughs> but I'm really looking forward to it. These are some of my favorite episodes. So let's start with Mr. Brentley. Uh, he's been on the road hunting moose and doing family time and he's back now <laughs> in his cottage and uh, he's got a topic for us. Yeah, I am, as some of you might have picked up over the years, a big fan of Signal. And I noticed that there's been kind of a snap signal snafu that happened recently. There was a the signal snap had a bit of a failure on multiple levels that was confusing at first, but I've dug in and I'm hoping to just kind of touch on it here with the hopes of asking one or two bigger questions once I'm done explaining what happened. All right. Okay. Yeah, I did hear something about this, like this, like they had to pull the snap or something from the snap store. Yeah, as far as I understand, it kind of vanished more so. And then users oh. who were using the signal snap just saw that it was missing. And upon investigating with um, snap list that you can run on the command line, it just indicated that 
it was in a snap quarantine, which I had never seen before. Have you guys seen that before? I have not. No, I have not. So that got me kind of like, oh, well, I like Signal and, well, snaps can be useful. And I wonder what happened here. And it turns out a lot happened. (laughs) Um, Mostly a bunch of communication breakdowns from a bunch of different sources. So there's a communication breakdown between Canonical and their volunteer snap maintainer, Galgalesh or Merlin Siebrecht. Okay, so this is a volunteer maintained signal snap. Yeah, community maintainer who maintains like an unofficial signal snap, which we've seen before in, you know, FlatHub as well. Um, Some of these more popular applications are available, but aren't sort of the official flavor that comes straight from the, you know, for instance, signal developers. Well, generally, the company doesn't really often even know about flat pack packaging or snap packaging or they're not interested in supporting it and so somebody in the community is like well this is an in-demand app so i'm going to step up and i'm going to make sure it's packaged and god bless them yeah but sometimes it's like a little bit of a security concern there too i could see especially with an app like signal yeah so it seems signal vanished and users noticed but the snap maintainer didn't know about it until they started seeing issues on their issue tracker and also just users saying, hey, what's going on? It's kind of missing. And they expected to hear from Canonical if something would have changed there. And so there's this kind of rabbit hole of different information that's a little bit everywhere that I've tried to put together. So from what I can tell, Marlin, the Snap maintainer, discovered the problem from users uh, who linked some Snapcraft IO forums where users were asking the question, you know, where did the Snap go for signal? So Merlin responded, I had to find this out myself from users reporting it on our bug tracker. There was an initial communication breakdown between me and Canonical due to how the Snapcrafters publisher is structured. Canonical is changing their procedures to make sure this communication breakdown doesn't happen in the future. Due to how the Snapcraft publishers worked, Canonical was communicating with the wrong person about the takedown. They've since amended the process to make sure this doesn't happen anymore. Now, Daniel Menrique who works at Canonical, uh, as a policy reviewer responded, I have updated the process documentation to be very, very explicit about this for future cases. So it sounds like small communication breakdown there that seems understandable, but caused a huge delay in getting this resolved. But it kind of gets more complex from there. Okay, so if I'm following, uh, they had to do a takedown. They do a takedown, but they don't know who to notify properly, so they just do it anyways. And then through the process of like realizing they didn't notify the right person, they come up with a new process, which they've now documented. But what's missing for me is why they had to remove it in the first place. Why was it so urgent mm-hmm. to just rip it out of the Snap Store? Well, I'm leading there, and the reason I'm making it a bit of a question for you is that this is exactly how the users felt. So I wanted you to feel exactly how they did. So there was also a communications breakdown with users. So at first, in some of these threads, Canonical said, the Snap Store administrators had to remove the Snap in accordance with our policies. We hope to have it back shortly. And that's kind of all that they wrote in there. So it was very cryptic, at least from what I can read. So it turns out that the Signal lawyers asked for a DMCA takedown of the Signal Snap. Aha. Uh-huh. And now it's not their official Snap offering. So I suppose because of perhaps trademark issues, that that is definitely something they can do. 
Now, Merlin, the community maintainer, just wrote a bit more once they did get involved and uh, dug into it behind the scenes. This is due to a DMCA takedown request coming from the lawyers representing Signal. Canonical is currently working with Signal to resolve the issue. I've suggested to Canonical to be more transparent with DMCA takedown requests, similar to how GitHub does it. Last I heard, they were discussing that internally. Due to how lawyers and legal threats work, Canonical is very hesitant to publicly talk about what's going on, understandably. You can expect a thorough post-mortem after the legal issues are cleared up. So I also noticed that Brian Acton actually spoke up about this on Hacker News. I did not expect to see Brian Acton, the Signal co-founder, leaving a little message there, um, which is kind of fun. But he wrote, we spoke to our attorneys and found that there was a breakdown in communication between us and our attorneys. We are working to rectify and reinstate the Signal desktop as soon as possible. Sorry for the confusion. You don't say. So the lawyers preemptively went out, discovered this trademark violation, took action on behalf of their client. Do they just have like a blank check in which they're operating from? So that's a good question, you know. Is that actually the case or is this just them sort of covering their butts a little bit? Could be. The lawyer's always a great one to blame. I mean, mm-hmm. that's part of why you pay them. But <laughs> I also could see it being like maybe there's just ongoing trademark protection. You know, I could see something they would do. Could be. Yeah, I know in the past they've had some issues with having Signal, for instance, in F-Droid as well. So there might be a history there that uh, we could dig into a little bit more at some point. But this whole kind of situation, which is multiple layers of communication breakdowns, it sounds like, just got me thinking a few questions that I thought we could explore. And I think the most obvious one is this third-party app bundling that's happening for Snaps and also for Flatpaks. I just wondered, is it still a good idea? It was really essential when those platforms and technologies first came to light because, you know, that's pretty essential to get users on the platforms is to have the apps that you want to use, like, you know, the commercial ones. And also, even though this is an open source application signal, uh, it still has some trademark issues there. So I wondered, now that Snaps and Flatpaks are a bit more mature, should we really have the original developers be the snap maintainers instead of community members i wanted to get your thoughts on that well but so even if snaps are more popular now or you know these types of packages you still got to get the the maintainers to be interested right like we wouldn't need it if they if they were if they were interested in maintaining the snap themselves we wouldn't none probably hopefully none of this would have happened yeah that seems to be the chicken or the egg problem isn't it and then do you get it on like multiple stores is it going to be snap and flat hub is right. it you know yeah and i could see why they're hesitant to to commit to that for sure i think maybe canonical has struck the balance here a little better than flat hub has where they make it pretty clear now after they've had some issues in the past thunderbird you can see is being published by canonical they make the publisher clear. And then they also have this thing called a verified account. And then you, if you go, say, take a look at Slack. Here, it's very clear that Slack is actually being published by the Slack group, right. who has also been verified by Canonical. And I think that's lessons they learned to try to make that more clear. But I don't know if, A, users are even aware to look for that difference. And, and B, I don't know if it really answers the question of what happens when it's something that is that needs like significant trust. Signal comes to mind. Maybe like a Bitcoin wallet or something that you would use to encrypt your files, like something that you want to place a lot of trust into. Should that be packaged by a third-party maintainer or should we only trust it from the original source? 
so far in Linux, we've made the trade-off and decided, well, the maintainers will do it. Like if you look at a traditional distro, it's not being none of the packages in there are generally being packaged by the upstream person typically. For Signal specifically, I've tr- traditionally used their official deb, which seems like a perfectly fine way to go. But since we had our summer of immu- immutability, I dove a little bit more into flat packs, thanks to both of you. And I kind of ran into that issue, which was trying to discover whether it was an official or not. And and then when I discovered that it wasn't, trying to determine if I should trust these people or not. And, you know, I tend to love open source and everyone involved as a basic default. But then the question becomes, well, I should I? <laughs> and and I found that difficult to discover because you end up going down a rabbit hole and ending up, you know, on the project's GitHub, uh, where there's like three maintainers. Sometimes there's more than that. And, and But these are still people that I don't know their association. So it's it's a funny little, funny little pickle we've got there. The nature of this whole problem comes down to a very ugly paradox that we don't like to talk about. The paradox is we want all these applications to exist and be available for the, for the medium of delivery that we, that we need or want to use. But nobody cares. Because nobody cares, uh, somebody has to do that work in the first place. And maybe a, uh, an ISV, because we're going to call them what they are, independent software vendors. An ISV will pick some mechanism in which they're going to deliver it, whether it's a tarball, an app image, an RPM, a deb, or even just like a self-extracting shell script, which is the most horrifying way to do it, but there you go. They'll pick a method, and it will not be the method you want. And so somebody has to do that transformation from one method to the other. And that is never, ever, ever going to stop, because there is no incentive for it to stop. You have tug-of-wars across all the different dimensions. So you've got, you've got people uh, who are gatekeepers of the software centers, who in the various distributions who will pick one format or the other, um, even if they could enable both, um, they won't uh, for either jealousy or ego or, or because there's a technical problem or something like that. And this comes back to a second order of issues that we have, which is that in the um, open source space, we have this, um, unwritten contract that there are actually two levels of responsibility here. There is the responsibility of the creator of the software, and there's the responsibility of the deliverer of the software. With Flathub and Snapcraft, Snapstore, I don't know whether they have a name for this especially, but um, in those worlds, uh, they're trying to essentially break this contract by saying the the, the person who creates the code should be the one that delivers the code in theory. But they also know that they don't have the pull to do it. And that this also creates uh, a legal conundrum because whenever you're delivering software that is not yours, you are actually taking on legal responsibility and liability. Again, not a lawyer, can't really, don't, don't, not legal advice, yada, yada, yada. But generally speaking, if you look at how all this stuff works, The moment you take a piece of code, whether it's compiled or not, and you do a transformation to deliver it, you're taking responsibility for that code at some level. And this is why a DMCA takedown by the Signal people 
uh, elicited the response that it did. Because um, at the end of the day, whether Canonical likes to admit it or not, and, and they definitely don't like to admit to this, they are ultimately publishing every application and at some level are legally responsible for every application delivered through the Snap Store. This is also true for FlatHub. At some level, they are responsible for every single thing that's on there. And if something is wrong, they are the ones in hot water just as much as everyone else, possibly more so because they're complicit. There's a whole lot of things that like Linux distributions have historically done quite a lot to avoid that these new age systems don't do. And because of that, we are going to see a lot more of these kinds of things happening as that exposure goes up and the proponents of these systems push it harder and harder. And the end result is going to be, um, with these new formats, probably what's going to eventually happen is uh, essentially maintainer bankruptcy. If it is not delivered by the creator and it is not an open source solution, it is just going to disappear from all the stores because um, the legal risk will go up over time, not down. Because this unwritten contract of you don't sue me for making your software available will be violated over and over Mm. and over. Oh, you should write this down, Neil. I feel like this would be a good spicy prediction for our predictions episode. Oh, yeah. It's going <laughs> to keep happening. Like, Signal Signal has a long and storied history of really not liking redistribution of their application. Yeah. It doesn't matter what platform it is. If it is redistributed by someone else, they're going to oh, go after you. Neil, Neil, it's just the lawyers. Neil, just blame the lawyers. So um, the lawyers are operating on a directive that exists at the course. top level that says... This is a thing we care about. And you know what? There's a lot of vendors that are the same way. Some of them hand wave it away. Standard practice at certain sizes. Yeah. yeah. So some vendors hand wave this away. I know, for example, that TeamViewer, even though the, their EULA actually forbids redistribution, um, they implicitly kind of hand wave it away for Linux people because it's, you know, they're too small and nobody cares. Uh, yada, yada, yada. But yes. like. <laughs> Sneaking it in. If you actually read the end user license agreements of virtually every proprietary software package, you're not allowed to do this. Yeah. And that is actually a thing we've all blatantly kind of ignored. Well, it's not, uh, you know, sh- come on. Yeah. Come and on so, like, this is going to keep, this will keep biting us. Ironically, as Linux becomes more popular, it will start biting us more. And so, you know, places like, um, you know, the infamous third-party repos that host non-free software in the various Linux distributions. I'm not going to name names, but we all know what they are. And the flat hubs and the Snapcrafts and all these other things in the world. They're going to get bitten and burned over and over and over again. And we're going to see a bankruptcy of those things. Save it for the prediction show. That's spicy. I won't I won't steal it. That's good. You, should, you, you own that one. I think uh, if you guys will allow it, I think Colonel and I should be these guys just for a moment. Because not only do I hear the belly aching about Signal getting pulled out of the Snap Store, but I also been hearing a lot of belly aching about them dropping SMS support. And girl, just use Matrix already, right, Colonel? Just use Matrix. <laughs> so one of the things I wanted to say on that is that Matrix is a decentralized program. You have multiple clients that are all compatible. You have a distributed network of servers. There is no one place that it can be taken down. Whereas Signal is a centralized proprietary application with one set of servers, one app, and is, in my opinion, hostile to the open source community. Oh, and I would also say is sort of subjective to one large ego who sort of has a vision, is very particular about that vision. Moxie Marlinspike has been very hostile 
to the open source community, not just Signal, but also other places as well. Um, there was an application that in FDroid that they took the Signal mobile code base, used the web hook for the desktop application just so that they could have a Android application that didn't rely on Google Services Framework. They, they went after them hard and basically shut them down. And that project was willing to work with Signal, was willing to, you know, what do we have to do to make this okay with you? And at the end of the day, Moxie, through GitHub comments and whatnot, it's, it's still all out there. You can go find it. He shut them down and said, no, this is basically, he said, it's my project. You'll do it my way. And I don't want you. That's the thing. And before we completely move off the matrix thing, I'll just say not all matrix is element. Fluffy chat is very much a telegram like experience or signal like experience. Cause I'd say signal is even simpler than telegram. Uh, fluffy chat is very clean. It's cross platform. It's GPL three. And it takes the complexity of matrix and it puts it behind a UI simpler than Telegram. And if you're on iOS specifically, there's Neo, N-I-O, which has been built with Swift UI from scratch using all of the iOS design languages. This is MPL. It's also open source. And it gives a very clean, very minimal messaging experience. It's all matrix underneath it. And the reason why that's powerful is because you could be sitting back with a big old full-scale element client, or you could be on Android with a totally different client, but you can still communicate and they can't pull any one client and they can't pull any one server. And so it's not just element when we mean matrix, when we talk matrix, it can be these more purpose-built clients too. And if you go to matrix.org slash clients, you can see a surprisingly big list of different clients for different platforms from mobile to desktop to the web. Uh, so matrix.org slash clients for that. You know, had you presented matrix as an option to replace something like signal maybe a year ago, eight months ago, I would have said no way. It's not even close to being usable. Uh, but these days I got, I, I'm changing my mind on that. It's actually been really nice. So I think you guys are onto something here. Yeah. It's harder when you already have a whole social group on a, on a particular service. You know, I, I get it. Sometimes people move quick though. Sometimes something comes up and people, they just jump ship. So when that moment, when that opportunity comes up, be ready. I also have two, let's call them notes, because you guys are all friends here. As far as I understand, the Signal desktop is a GPL v3, so it is open source. And uh, so the backend service, I don't believe is. Maybe that's the distinction. And I'm pretty sure from what I've been reading that uh, Moxie's not with Signal anymore. So maybe that's a good thing. So Moxie's not with Signal. And yes, the client is a Faro GPL, but rebuilds that are not officially blessed by Signal will not be allowed to connect to the Signal server. So it doesn't matter. Bitwarden.com slash Linux. Go try it for free as an individual, or if you're a team, maybe you're in an enterprise, you can get a free trial when you go to bitwarden.com slash Linux. Straight up, I have to be honest with you. I have tried them all, and Bitwarden I have found to be the best and easiest way to store, share, and sync your sensitive data. And I love that Bitwarden is open source. It's trusted by millions of individuals, teams, open source projects, organizations, and more for all their secure password storage. And when you do have to share that stuff, also Bitwarden helps you there too. In fact, it's really the only way you can feel safe kind of moving that sort of stuff around the internet between individuals. You don't want to write it down on a sticky note. <laughs> Wes and I have been using it personally for years. I think Wes longer than I have. 
And Bitwarden's been rolling out great features like account switching in the mobile app or fast mail and DuckDuckGo integration so you can use a unique email address with every site or service or app that you're signing up with, as well as a secure password, as well as a unique username. I mean, that's really, you can just layer on the security there. And I noticed Bitwarden just recently posted a great tutorial. I always like to keep my eye on this stuff for you guys, because, you know, why not leverage this and just get even more, I guess, secure? Because <laughs> they have Bitwarden CLI, of course. Yeah, that's right. They have a command line version of Bitwarden, and you can use this and pop in your passwords in your shell when you need to, like, log into something on the command line. You can leverage Bitwarden CLI and shell functions to create simple workflows that just allow you to unlock your secrets into environment variables whenever you need without requiring you to hard code your secrets into your dot files. How nice is that? Especially if you want to move them around between machines. So Bitwarden CLI could be a really great tool for your tool chest. Is that the phrase? I'll put a link to the guide in the show notes. so You can check it out and see if it'll work for you, but go over to bitwarden.com slash Linux to support the show or send it to somebody, you know, that could use better password management. Maybe a friend, a family member, Place of work, open source project, you know they're out there. Send them to bitwarden.com slash Linux. It'll be worth their time. And you know it's the best way for them to stay secure online too. Bitwarden.com slash Linux. All right, Mr. Payne. So what would you like to share with the class this week? Yeah, I just want to do uh send a little love to Godot, the uh, cross-platform free and open source game engine. It's MIT, don't you know, launched in January 2014. And it's one of those really special projects, I think, because, you know, in the in the game-making ecosystem, there's just not that many great tools that, I mean, you might be able to get it for free or use it, but that's, you know, some student or creator license or, you know, mm. if you make any serious money, they're, they're going to want to cut. You're yeah. going to need to spend a whole bunch of money on these, on these assets through their system. They don't do any of that? No, no. They're designed, they're, they're trying to make a project that has a, big set of common tools so you can just focus on making your game you don't have to like you know shell out and use a whole bunch of go go find all the top leading industry applications that you're going to need to do your your audio stuff and to go make your graphics now of course you can do that and import stuff if you want but godot's trying to make like a friendly you know you're learning about how to get into games i mean you can use it for serious games too but but with a, a holistic approach that lets you really have everything you need under one roof Looks like they just had a brand new beta release just a couple days ago, too. Yeah, 3.5 came out in August, which was really nice. And they're working on a 4.0. They're in the beta steps right now. And that, that's that got some, oh, that's got a lot of promising stuff. And, you know, you can you can export native Linux games just, you know, right from Godot. So they're platform friendly for us. You can target Android. You can target WebAssembly. It runs on Linux as well as, of course, you know, a bunch of other platforms. You can compile it for BSD if you want to or run it on Windows or Mac. Yeah, there's even a web editor. If you if you want to go crazy, there's a web editor. It's interesting you bring this up because, okay, so they just released a new beta a couple of days ago, and then a couple of days before that, they moved to a new foundation. They did, yeah. Okay, so as I mentioned, they started way back in 2014, you know, just a couple of people who were trying to hack together a game engine. Uh, in 2015, they joined the SFC. The SFC provided them, a, you know, a foundation structure, a way to sort of take donations from projects because, you know, they'll sometimes get sponsorships from game studios or, you know, various other players in the industry. And you need legal frameworks, you need processes, yeah. you need accountants who can sure. help you, like, do those things. Gosh. And it's But it's been, you know, I think both parties have been really happy with it. It's, it's maybe a good example of what the SFC can do for open source projects is, you know, let them start to hire people part-time, eventually start to hire people and support them full-time to work on Godot. 
But at this point, you know, Godot's really taken off. It's grown a lot. And so they're launching their own foundation now. And they're they're pitching this as it's a it's a graduation from the SFC to launch their own foundation. They're trying to take a lot off of how Blender does it. Um, ah, I think I sense. think we've all been pretty pleased. You yeah. know, I don't know that they're perfect, but as far as foundations go, it seems like Blender's got a good a good foundation in order. So that gives me some hope that you know they are part of this is does seem to be that they want to mix up the different approaches that they can have. You know, maybe tailor some things to a thing that would make sense for Godot that didn't make sense for all the projects under the SFC umbrella. So they're thinking maybe they're going to have crowdfunding campaigns like like Blender or Krita do. They're talking about maybe setting up something that lets users start to sell assets for an asset library and integrate that in. Maybe sell merchandise or, you know, just get a little more flexibility with sponsoring events or having events or how might you fund that or try to get fly people in to be there. So there's a lot going on. And it's just, it's really easy to get started with. They've got a, a Python-like scripting language, um, like Godot script that's built in. Oh, you, okay. You can also use C Sharp if you already know C Sharp. So that's that's supported right out of the box. And I think you can even use C++ or Rust or, you know, there's some like community-supported <laughs> versions too if <laughs> what, you're a masochist you there, like that. You yeah, yeah, I think you can use Rust with it. <laughs> okay. Uh, that, it, it, I, this sounds like a really cool pick, or it's not a pick, but I guess it's a it's a cool subject to bring to the class, I guess. But I'm curious why it's on your radar. Are you uh, are you fooling around with making a game? I've I've, I've dabbled a little bit. Are uh, you dabbling on a game? A little bit. Really? Yeah. Well, so it's actually I've been trying to help. Uh, my my brother is very creative in this aspect, and he you know he's he's a big gamer. He likes these things. He plays D and D, and you know he's into sort of crafting um, all the different aspects of a game. And so I've been trying to help him. He's learning some, and that's been a fun adventure for me to sort of sit alongside and. As he's learning the technical side, and I'm trying to support him there, and you're, you're sending him down this path of Godot. Yeah, he found it. Uh, Godot. Godot. Yeah, Godot. He, he actually found it first. I'd heard of it. You know, I, I'd followed it and looked at the looked at the news, but it was so neat because you know he's got. I did. I did give him a, a Linux laptop a couple of years ago that he does use, but he's using it on his main sort of Windows gaming PC. But it didn't matter. Like I could just load his project in and up, make some updates and be like, oh, maybe try doing it this way and share it back with him and he could load it up on windows no problem so that's powerful yeah it's hmm. been it's been a really nice um fun and now I'm, I'm not expert i haven't made any fancy games yet or anything but there's a lot of tutorials out there there's a strong community on on youtube of creators who are you know sharing you walking you through got example project files you can download so it seems super accessible uh before today i was aware of it but i think in the back of my mind i thought it was like like um using go for creating mm. games mm-hmm. I didn't realize that would be a good name for it. That's why I thought it was Godot, but Godot. And I think in the past they were had a little more limited scope. It seemed like maybe it was better focused on like two D games and stuff. But these days they've got you know rich three D capabilities. Hmm. You can make VR applications if you want. You can publish to WebAssembly. You can publish for all the mobile platforms. Like it seems like you know if you're not a professional, you're trying to just learn or explore. Uh, you could go a long way with Godot before it was going to be your limitation. You know what I like about their website? Seeing a lot of Tux the Penguin, mm-hmm. and I'm seeing a lot of open source stuff on here. I'm seeing the open source logo, I'm seeing open source listed as one of their main features. Great. That is really slick. Well, thanks for uh, telling us about that. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to share with you guys a little thing, a little trend that I've noticed, and I know some of our community members have because I've seen it getting discussed in our Matrix kind of recently. And that is, since Elon's announcement that he's taking over Twitter, you know, that rough timeline, we are seeing reports of just massive user gains for Mastodon. 70,000 users 
joining in the last couple of weeks is one of the numbers I've seen going around. I know I've heard it on some, you know, NPR type segments, other news coverage. People it doesn't get a lot of play, but its name is thrown out there. CNN. CNN headline from CNN. Updated uh, yesterday with Twitter in chaos. Mastodon is on fire. This is from your CNN news here. And this is the bit. This is uh, the bit that I noticed that I thought was pretty interesting. They say the service speaking about Mastodon. The service has a similar look to Twitter with a timeline of short updates sorted chronologically rather than algorithmically. It lets users join a slew of different servers run by various groups and individuals rather than one central platform controlled by a single company like Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Now, isn't that interesting that that is one of the things they decided to kind of emphasize to the audience there? It's decentralized nature. And I I don't think that, you know, Twitter's dead and Mastodon's going to take over or anything like that. But I find it interesting, and I'm curious to know what you think, about these open source projects that build and build and build for years and years. And we know about them, we hear about them, and they kind of hover and they, and they have some users and we kind of keep them alive as the enthusiasts and we kind of use them a little bit. But then every now and then something breaks in the world and the normals hear about one of these things that has been around for years and they rush in. And all of a sudden a project just has tens of thousands of more users and there's tons more instances going along. It's a fascinating phenomenon. What do you attribute that to? That it's like it just wasn't good enough to replace the the main thing until well, you what, know, you've got, got that enough? you've got the network effect. You know, what do you yeah. need? A, what do you need? A harder to figure out, harder to set up. You got to make some choices to pick your instance sort of system. If you, you know, you're already on the functionally the one instance everyone cares about. I wondered is uh, is the pull hitting? Do you guys feel like it's time to join Mastodon or get on? Get on a Mastodon if you're not. I am, I am curious again. You know, I've never, I don't know that I've ever actually set, set it up. I have, you know, followed it for a while. and But yeah. What about you, Brentley? Are you getting the Mastodon urge at all? Well, the first time I got curious was when I was in Alan Jude's basement doing a brunch with him. And he said, hey, are you a Fediverse guy? And uh, so I looked into it a little bit. Um, but these days, I feel like it's almost irresponsible not to at least check it out a little bit. I was just not interested in any more social media, like Telegram, Twitter, Matrix, several others that I can't think of off the top of my head. Those are sufficient for me. I didn't really want to add another one, so I just sort of said no. But then when the podcasting 2.0 stuff came along and they had a Mastodon to just talk about podcasting 2.0, it all of a sudden made a ton of sense because it was like a niche category they're talking about app development namespace development they're you know hashing out what the new standards should be for things and it's like people t- discussing podcasting and i'm like okay i'll join that that makes a ton of sense so i do have a mastodon account but it's on a very specific instance and you're not really using the sort of federation aspect no am i missing something because i love the matrix federated aspect but matrix seems to really fill this this hole for me but i wonder if it is the time to have like is it is it time to have a JB Mastodon or should I just be joining somebody else's Mastodon? What is the protocol there? Are Mastodon servers a pain in the butt to run? I know you looked a little bit into setting it up. It didn't seem that hard. I mean, there's some, you know, official containers out there and such. So. This is exactly the conversation we had around Matrix. And what is the size of that box we're running these days? <laughs> okay, fair. We did end up, It's on like a 48 core rig now. <laughs> yeah, we also... Uh, made some mistakes that maybe we've learned from yeah we have to find out <laughs> you kind of want to sell one up don't you <laughs> well what is how, wrong how better you? to try it 
What is wrong with you? I mean, I'd kind of be down, I suppose. What's the point of having a system you can run yourself if you don't at least try running it? But then what happens if I already have an account? I have an account on Mastodon. I believe there's a way to migrate. I don't know how how easy that is. And then also I know like the PeerTube instance is is also part of that federation. It's very confusing to me. If you've created uh, a Mastodon presence on one home server and decide you want to migrate to another, there's in in pretty much every Mastodon, uh, I should say, every activity pub Twitter clone-like implementation. So that's (laughs) basically what this is. Yeah. Um, In their account UI, you can transfer your your account to another to another account that you have created, and it'll basically create a forwarding address. And so all of your followers will move. In theory, all of your followings will move. Um, It'll create a continuity between your posts. All that other fun stuff. So picking one is not a forever choice. If you don't like your home server at some point in the future, you can jump ship. If your home server is now broken and you want to, and you need to move somewhere else, you can do that too. So would it be weird? See, I think what we probably should have done with Matrix is we should have set up Matrix and just left it to the JB people. And then everybody else uses Matrix.org to create their account and join our server. That was one of the mistakes I was thinking about earlier. That's what the uh, Tux Digital folks did with their system was they didn't. They only allowed people to create accounts on the Tux Digital server when they were creators of the network. So I wonder, is the solution with Mastodon to do the same? It's more scalable that way. Um, Because uh, like Matrix, Mastodon's underlying system works off of synchronizing events via a pub-sub mechanism. ActivityPub and Matrix behave very similarly, even though they're different standards. And so you have the same kind of resource constraints and performance constraints. So, yeah, you probably want to create a lockdown Mastodon server that only y'all are using. And then everyone else just kind of connects with you through their own. I mean, part of the, the whole federated benefits, right? I mean, just have our own and then connect out to uh, all our friends. But the, the important part is to make sure that your, your server is discoverable, right? Like if it's not, then all of that doesn't matter. What I like about it is it's sort of like it's our own form of verification because we'd have an at jupiterbroadcasting.com domain. It's like you'd know it really is us. And, you know, we don't have to have any blue check mark that's eight bucks a month. It's just we have our own <laughs> domain name. I like it. I think one question I would have is what can it provide that our matrix instance and use of it for the last six plus months wouldn't provide? Well, I suppose there's people that are on the Mastodon Fediverse that aren't in matrix. So you could follow them. There is an argument for Matrix to be used for real-time discussion and something else to be used for more longer-term stuff that people can post and come back to at all different hours and review in a feed on their own schedule. Right. I mean, because one, I mean, I suppose like the the Twitter-style things are used for different purposes by different groups and all that, but one of them is a sort of like broadcasty or musing or, you know, whatever jokes, things that you wouldn't really put necessarily in like a public channel unless you... We're very social about it. God, the more we talk about it, the less I want to do it. I really do. <laughs> it's just, I I hate social media so much. But then I remember, like, except for, this is selecting for very high quality signal. Like, the open source community, the free software community, and in particular, the JB audience, which this would skew towards, is higher than average signal. So then it does make it more worth it again. And So here's the thing to think about, right? So ActivityPub, the underlying protocol that what we call Mastodon, or some would use called Pleroma or some of these other ones, right? That underlying protocol is not just used for Twitterati-style messaging. 
It's also used for things like blogging. So I believe, uh, what's it, Write Freely is an ActivityPub-based blog platform. And uh, there are a few others out there. And basically, one thing you can do is to combine long-form and short-form in such a way that someone you would post on on a system attached through activity pub and someone could comment on it through this and then you yeah. wind up having this federated mechanism of connecting these two so having and and again this same address can exist in different solutions at the same time because again the activity pub publishing address is what matters here so for example chris Laz at Jupiter uh, at Chris Laz at jupiterbroadcasting.com. I really hate the scheme that they picked for activity. Pub. Yeah. It's really dumb. Yeah. But all right, put that aside. That address could be both a blogging platform where you are writing about or blogging or whatever, because PeerTube is also activity pub oriented. Right. And all of these things connect. And as you're using a singular identity to publish as, everyone else can see them and they can reply to them, which turn into comments and visible feeds and things of that nature. And then you wind up having this um, interconnected relationship. And this goes for like PixelFed as well, right? The the federated image hosting thing that also operates on ActivityPub. And I've so, noticed that a little bit. I've already noticed some ActivityPub cross-publishing with PeerTube, and that is pretty powerful. ActivityPub is designed for multiple forms of transmission from a single identity, whereas the Matrix Protocol is designed for real-time communication, or at least a facsimile of it um, across... Uh, across a single identity, uh, across different servers and things like that with a single identity. So the idea is with ActivityPub, you take these disparate services and you connect them to a unified identity and different types of content are published with that identity and everything weaves together and clients that respect these different types of events process them correctly. So if you're looking at a federated blog viewer or if you're looking at a a Twitterati style client, or if you're looking at, you know, uh, a, a photo a gallery, um, Pinterest style thing or whatever, right? The idea of activity pub is that you have a coherent singular identity that can have all these multiple forms of content. And then the clients will interpret that and do what it, you will with it. Whereas with matrix, you're just talking about, you know, you have a dedicated purpose. These features are being built around a particular single method of communication. And you're supporting that mechanism with its clients and servers so that's where the core difference is like yeah that's a good distinction to make you're not going to see matrix do like image galleries i mean technically i suppose you could do that but like nobody's like going out there and doing that (laughs) whereas activity pub that's a very real thing you would do all right so let me know everyone out there what your thoughts are on if you're feeling the pull towards mastodon i i would go if there's enough audience there i think it'd be something i'd consider like to hear your thoughts on it MJVC wrote in, just wanted to report that I've been successfully using NixOS on the Steam Deck as a desktop replacement. Dual booting SteamOS and NixOS gives me the best of both worlds. There are a few hiccups with the touchscreen, but aside from that, it works pretty flawlessly. That is really cool on I the love Steam Deck. It. Oh, man. I replied very quickly saying, tell us how we want to do this. So we might have an update coming soon. And I wonder, is it Plasma or are you using Gnome? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Good question. I think this is more of a teaser than a, you know, full description. So I'm going to wait for the update and we'll come back on that. Five also wrote in about NixOS. Surprise, surprise. I have an idea. 
You keep saying, Chris, that you don't want to pollute Linux Unplugged with too much NixOS. <laughs> we did it again this week, didn't we? While I agree, I think NixOS is so vast that uh, maybe you can start NixOS Unplugged. <laughs> That's what we need. We need another show. <laughs> just what you asked for. Uh, what we'll do is we'll just geek out and then we'll just surface the best of. We'll uh, condense it down and just really bring you the nuggets from time to time. Right? Is that what our... Is that You like that plan? Is that sound? I think so. All right. Let's <laughs> go with that. And now it is time for Le Boost. So the first boost we're going to get to this week is actually follow-up on a boost that was sent in from Nev a couple of weeks ago who offered to send us an ARC GPU from Intel. Incredibly generous. So we wrote back and said, no, but we'll borrow it for a little oh. bit. <laughs> and guess what? It's right it's here. It's here. We have it right <laughs> here. Look at that Showed beauty. Up. The ASRock Challenger ITX Intel Arc A380. I'm going to open her up here. There's there's actually a pie in the box. I, I actually <laughs> have not opened it. So if there is or a bomb, we're going to stream it live. We will find out. Pie would be not what I want, but not like totally disappointing. <laughs> I think that might be our version of a Rickroll at this point. I don't know. Oh, there's a <laughs> there's an envelope in here. You know, I feel like we should do the Johnny Carson thing. So we'll read that. Tracks? <laughs> oh, here it is. At least oh. we die doing what we love. Nav, you're the best, a.k.a. Josh. The best. Look at this. Oh, look at this beautiful card. Oh, there's a, there's a thumb drive in here, too. Okay. But what, no, you know better than to put a strange <laughs> thumb drive. There's a thumb drive. I Wouldn't that be fun? Tempting. Well, maybe we'll find out in the members feed. We'll figure out what's in the thumb drive. But, yeah, this... Uh, Check, check it out, Wes. That's a compact little card. The yes, A380 it is. Doesn't look bad though. And uh, I imagine our, or I think our Thalia order is going to go in Monday morning. I've been dragging. I've been so busy. I haven't got around to it. That's how and stupid you wanna, busy I am. You want to savor that click, you know, when you actually hit the yeah. order too. You got to be in the right yeah. state of mind. Glass of champagne in hand. I uh, I've come. With, I think with a really reasonable build. I think it's a very reasonable build of the Thalia, and I'll share it when we get it. But that's going in there. Look at it. Yeah, take it out. Take it out. Let's pull it out. Let's pull it out. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is beautiful. Intel, thank you. Thank you for making this, Intel, finally. Look at the fan on that thing. Hold that up a little bit there, Wes, so we can look at it. Yeah, look at that thing. It's got a almost like 100, almost probably not quite as big as a 120 millimeter fan on the top of it. Yeah, but one big fan. So hopefully, it there we go. <laughs> yeah, that really moves. Good job, Wes. You got it. You got to do a fan <laughs> test. Got to do a fan test. Leader of the mind. Wes blows across the fan to prove to the listener it's really there. We got uh, one HDMI, three display ports here. Nice little plugs it ships with. I mean, it's not quite, but it's almost half the length of a new NVIDIA card. It's not quite, but it is stout. It's wide and stout. It's nice. So we'll throw that in the new Thaleo and th throw it through its paces. And hopefully we'll see, hopefully get OBS going with that. Is it up to the challenge? Will it meet our needs? It's not ready yet. OBS, I think just... Is, I, I saw the pull request go in to turn on quick sync video stuff for for free codecs um, and support for the new generation of the Intel Arc stuff like like the last week. So I don't I don't think that that's a thing for a little while. Build an OBS from source again. We're back here. Yep. Also, uh, just a couple of days ago, Michael Larbrell reported that uh, you need an Intel ME enabled system to update the GSC firmware on the. Arc right now. 
So that means A, it's got to be an Intel system to even update the firmware, and B, you need Intel ME enabled, which I don't know what that means for the Thalio. Uh, but since we're only borrowing it, it's not the end of the world for us. But it's something it's weird. It's one of those clearly, clearly a new product, but that's okay. Yeah. So an era. on System 76 machines, the management engine is turned off. So that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, if I was going to, if I was buying this forevers, yes. But since we just want to test it and we're willing to do a little bit of the grunt work to make that work. I don't actually know if the System 76 things give you the ability to turn it on. You should tell us when you get the paleo whether they give you an option to turn it back on. Yeah. Well, I'll, tr- I'll also try a firmware update if there is one just to see what happens. Hopefully. I don't think it would <laughs> break it, right? I don't want to Chris break breaks the GPU. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, Chris, do you know how long you have this for? Is there like a loaner expiry date? Have you come to some agreement there? Um, so basically, in, in, you know, until I were done, I guess, you didn't really say. <laughs> I don't intend to keep it too long. You know, a few years, you know, no big deal, you know, just just a few years. Sounds great. Okay, update. I guess Intel reached out to say that firmware updating will work on AMD platforms. I just don't think all the details good. of like what weird app you have to run or how exactly that will work. But. Okay, so it will work. Well, the good news, it's only $120-ish, so, you know, if Chris breaks it, he can afford to pay the guy back we'll take it out of brent sats all right uh knights 62 boosted in with 4096 sats this is my first boost i use the blue wallet albi combination so blue wallet to get the sats and then albi as the lightning wallet the idea of setting up my own lightning node seems very appealing but i found that the setup is actually working really easy i loving that i can just give some value this way now here's a question about NixOS versus ansible on other distros can you go deeper into what makes Nix so much better in your opinion? Couldn't a well-documented Ansible setup do most of the same things? I'd also love to hear more about the Nix package manager on other distros. Does this replace Ansible? It's a great question because we get this one a lot. And I don't think the position of the show is one is better than the other, to make that clear. Um, and Ansible is obviously going to support a lot wider range of combination of devices, services, hardware, distributions, software in general. And we use Ansible here, so it's not like we're anti-Ansible. <laughs> I think what I explained earlier today with the setup I was doing, where I, you know, just took a config file off my laptop and dropped it on my Odroid, very different systems, very different hardware. And I just rebuilt, and I had a fully functional system without having all of the overhead of also having Ansible and having to understand how to write a playbook and manage all of that. It's just basically some YAML. And you can almost always find an example. And it's there's a simplicity if you're only using Nix. It doesn't really work so great outside of that. You could use the Nix package manager on just about anything. But yeah, I like I use it on my uh, work Mac and I love it. Having yeah. it there. It's super, super helpful. Yeah, I, I think it's better than Brew in most cases. So I think the other part, too, is um, you're right. Like Ansible, super flexible. You can you know use it all kinds of different places. It's trying to solve problems that Nix is not primarily targeted at. There's, there's a lot of differences because Ansible is a big tool and Nix also is a big tool then especially between Nix and Nix OS. But the other part is, I think for you, at least from what we've talked about, kind of wanted to get away from those other distros, right? Like, okay, if I if I use Ansible, I might not have to think about it as much because I wrote that playbook and it's solved, but like you're still using apt under the hood or things like that. Like yeah, Nix is a much more holistic, for the things it works for, you've got this package and system that all feels tightly together and lean and mean and not just sort of bolted on top to try to pat, paper over some of the limitations of the base system. Yeah, I think you nailed it. And uh, you and I both just 
trend towards a preference for very simple servers, minimum viable server, nothing more than it needs to be. And, and then because you and I apparently are masochists when we can, we also make them rolling because if you keep it simple and you appropriately separate applications and data and you've got good backups and snapshots, I actually think the best experience in Linux is a very modern system. I wouldn't say cutting edge because there's some stuff in Nix that isn't super cutting edge, but, um, and that, that all has worked really well without having all of the Ansible overhead. So, yes, you put it very well. Well, our next boost comes from Cass Peeland with 3,690 sats. B-O-O-S-T! Just a simple message this time. I hope the boost in streaming sats will help you podcasters. Good to see you again, Cass. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Ah, uh, another favorite of ours. Wait, all boosters are our favorites. <laughs> but it's Rasta Casta Versa. Boosted in with 1,000 sets. And calling out something that I think we all noticed and appreciated. Big mumble room energy on the intro last week. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. So, uh, hey, thanks, mumble room. It was really painful not to be here last week. Uh, and having that strong intro, knowing that you were here to support Chris, that, that helped a lot. I was. Yep. Yeah. Also, big shout out to Neil in there specifically. And the whole mumble room was just great. I think they had my back, you know, because you guys were both out. Brent on his secret mission to moose hunt and you with the sick. And so to have them just there with my back was great. But the funny thing was, is literally everybody internally on our internal chat. Like that was the first comment. Yeah. That mumble intro energy. <laughs> yeah, totally killed it. That was great. So thank you very much. I will say we also did get some feedback uh, specifically saying that uh, Neil was very much enjoyed last episode. So thanks, Neil, for, for filling in for us. Aw, well, uh, I would not take that. I guess thanks. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> appropriate. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. He's blushing. Tater boosts in with 2,050 sets. Coming in hot with the boost. Tater says, coming in hot with the boost. We love that one. That's my favorite. I feel like Tater took my advice. I said, you don't have to write us something profound to kick off a huge discussion. Just send us the boost for support because we love those. Thank you very much, Tater. Well, NorCal Geek wrote something profound. Hello, NorCal Geek, uh, with 8080 sets. You're doing a good job. Hey, I know I'm a few weeks behind, but I wanted to put in my two cents on the ButterFS discussion. I mean, we're always talking about ButterFS, so I think you're right on time. I'm currently using OpenSUSE, micro OS desktop, as my daily driver. MicroOS is an immutable OS which uses ButterFS snapshots instead of OS tree, like Silverblue does. For me, it's been rock solid. The updates apply every time, and I haven't had to break or roll back yet. That's a W for ButterFS to me. I agree, and I think OpenSUSE, too. Um, I think one of the things that they point out here is they're using it as the desktop daily driver, and to have that kind of rock-solid performance, that is a win. That is super nice. We spent a period of time between distros. We spent some time with OpenSUSE. And I played with the immutable version for a little bit on a CM4 and we set up a Jellyfin server on it and we all kind of added a bunch of different stuff to it. And I, I was really impressed. I, I really was. Um, again, there's a lot of OS there. And we're more of a minimum viable OS type guys, but it's a great OS. It is that. Yeah, I think it could be, you know, it seemed very administratable, you know, designed with that kind of in mind, which uh, you got to appreciate when things when things go wrong. User 720 also wrote in with 100 cents. GIF? GIF? Let's hold a boost ballot. Here's 100 sats on GIF. Wow, then GIF is winning right now. 
There's, there, <laughs> so far. We'll find out next week. Yeah. That's it right there, right? I guess. Woof, okay. Who are we to stand in the way? Pull over. Yeah. So far, gifts the winner. Maybe it only takes 100 sats. Maybe it's settled. Maybe it's not. JPC also boosted in with 22,222 sats. Love the show, by the way. I'm using Boost CLI. Just like that. It's awesome. The, it's the new, by the way, I use Arch. Huh? Right? I kind of, well, it is more technical than setting up Arch. Yeah, maybe you want to set it up on by Arch. about a mile. I am so impressed, uh, JPC. Thank you also for the for the generous boost. Yeah. But also, Boost CLI is a serious badge of honor. You have mastered multiple layers of the stack, and you are very impressive. Thank you for the boost. I, I haven't even gotten that working yet. And I've been playing around with Bitcoin for 13 years, and I haven't even gotten that working yet. So give me a break. <laughs> um, all right. Maybe maybe 11 years. Anonymous boosted in with 1,000 sats. Just to say, regarding caring about if the art is generated from AI, when I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it not because of the artist. I'm looking at it because it's beautiful, much like diamonds. Even when they're created in the lab, they're still beautiful. They're still art. You know, we got a couple of people that actually wrote in and said they would listen to AI-generated versions of the show. Well, how do they know they're not listening right now to that? How do they know? We need to generate some more stills. How do we do this? Oh, yeah, we do need to. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm running out of a little st- project. Okay. I'm running out of stills, but I, do we have the GPU power anywhere? Or do we spin up another one? I don't know. You tell me. I do not know. We also got uh, a bunch of boosts that either had no message or they were streaming sats. Um, so we don't cover all of them, so that way we can keep this tight enough. But I do just want to do a couple of shout-outs. 250 sats from Tepulus, 500 sats from Code Michael, and 100 sats from Now Science News. Thank you to them. Thank you to everyone who boosted in, even if you didn't make it on the show. And of course, to all the ones who do make it on the show. If you'd like to participate in the grand experiment, you can get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. We're building a network of people that are armed with sats. And we're starting to see a couple of open source projects come on. But we're also seeing a lot of podcasters come online. And I think this is a critical moment in podcasting. I think we are witnessing... Wes, what was the one you were listening to recently where they had just these horrible dynamic inserted ads? Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, I think it was the Conan O'Brien podcast. Yep. And it was like, it was one of those gambling, you know, platform sports betting kind of things. And then after the ad, it was this super cut and slightly tightened and and sped up. Sped up. Yeah, like 1.25x speed without me doing it in the app, but just of the ad and them doing all the disclaimers state by state for the different hotlines if you have a gambling problem, which that's good. People should get help, but like... (laughs) It, and it was a solid 30 seconds. And I was like, I just was trying to listen to the podcast. I don't mind a little ad because most of his ads are kind of like, you're, you know, like yeah. he, they're, they're funny and they're like organic. This was just garbage. Well, you know, what they do is so when, when revenue dips, and this is going to be happening more and more, is you just turn to the dynamic ads. It's kind of like monetizing on YouTube. And I just not the direction to go. And they're, it's, it's they're, somehow they made them worse than radio ads, which is what's remarkable is. Like, you would never have thought it was going to happen in podcasting. And I hate to see this happening. And I feel like we're building an alternative with podcasting 2.0 and the value for value stuff. So uh, I'm hoping that this is an idea that spreads. And if you'd like to participate, newpodcastapps.com. If you're in the States and you want to grab some sats really easy, the Cash App and the Strike App make that super easy to do. The Cash App just recently added Lightning support. So there's a major vendor on Lightning now. Hey, yo. Um, and then if you're outside the States, Blue Wallet and RoboSats. And uh, others are great ways to go. Now, we're running kind of long, so we're going to skip the picks this week. So why don't we mention that we will be live next week. We are doing our Fedora 37 review. We'd love to have you join us for that. That's at jupiter.tube. 
We usually kick off the stream a little bit before noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern over there. So get your browser fired up or your VLC client or your MPV. Head over to Jupiter.tube and help us uh, peer out the stream. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station. We need like a phrase for that. Like when you're at, when you're helping seed the stream, is that it? Because uh, it's all peer to peer. It is all peer to peer, and so it lets us run our own YouTube, we basically. Have, yeah, right? We're not paying our big CDN bills. Yep, and it's part of the federation. It's a powerful set of tooling. I love it. Self-hosted value for value. Self-hosted live streaming. Self-hosted live interaction. You know, like Next just up, all of it. Self-hosted Twitter. Self-hosted Mastodon. You know, I don't know. Maybe let us know what you think. Thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of the Unplugged program. Links to what we talked about today at linuxunplugged.com slash what? 484384? You'll figure it out. Figure it out. See you next week. question and I, I i am very afraid of what the answer is going to be but i think i know what it's going to be Uh-oh. i think my car has a blown head gasket not my not my car but my wife's car has a blown head gasket T- oh, typically no. if you think that it does it probably does here's the symptoms i'm seeing we're using we've we not always but we've had to refill the coolant a couple of times but there's no dripping oh and the catalytic converter is clogged up oh oh god I did a uh, OB2 port scan, and I noticed that bank one is running rich, and it's adding fuel, hmm. especially at low idles. It's adding like 16% fuel, and then on the freeway, it's doing like 2%. And I'm thinking like, okay, so coolant's gone. Um, not rapid coolant, but a little bit of coolant. Uh-huh. Thinking running rich, thinking clogged cat. Does it report like compression on each cylinder as well? Do you have that kind of detail? You know, I didn't see that. Look for it. I think that's a. That would be a key have. indicator, huh? I think I'm going to bring oh, it yeah. in and find out. I like our uh, impromptu car talk segment here. Yeah, a little car talk. A little Linux car talk. <laughs> Before cars are computers. Bah, 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 bah. Brent's garage. Well, cars are computers. Yeah, they re- especially this one. Let me tell you. Chris, did you try a last minute upgrade? See if that fixes it. <laughs> right.